Greetings all. Welcome back to the Captimizer podcast. Another fantastic guest today. I have Donna Brown, retired sergeant from the Tallahassee Police Department in Florida, where she spent uh, just under 27 years. That seems to be a magic number. That was <laughs> that was that was my number. I, I finished year 27 and did one day in year 28. Uh, actually, I was 26 years, three months, and five days. To not that, it, not that you're counting, right? <laughs> no, right, exactly. Never counted. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you spending some of your valuable time with us today, Donna. And uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. I I love doing these, and it's always an honor. So I appreciate it. So just right up front to let the listeners know, not only are you a retired police officer, but you are now a veteran author and the author of a series of three books called Beyond Behind Beyond the Badge. And it's, there are stories of resilience, grit, empathy, compassion, perseverance, all the things that we look for in, in, police officers, you've done a, an amazing job of, of highlighting some of these careers and telling their stories. Thank you. And I want to get to some of them, but we got to start with yours first. <laughs> okay. Um, I was, I'm going to date myself here. Uh, I was hired by the Tallahassee Police Department in 1979. Um, I was one of only five women at the time. And honestly, uh, Pretty much the reason the five of us were there is a woman a year or two prior to that had to sue the city of Tallahassee because they flat out didn't hire women. <laughs> so uh, I've obviously seen a whole lot of changes over the years. But um, like everybody else, I started out uh, working the streets, uh, became a field training officer, um, got promoted, worked, well, actually before getting promoted, I moved to our uh, training unit, which probably was one of my favorite assignments. Um, promoted out of there, came back to the streets, eventually became an FTO sergeant, uh, and then eventually was moved into our criminal investigations bureau. I worked a couple different assignments and landed in uh homicide, where I ended up supervising our homicide unit for 10 years. Well, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah, you know, <laughs> d just in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> well, even even those those first 10 years, there there's a lot that we could cover there. And but I got to go back. Right. So one of one of five women. Yes, um, that's, um, that's pretty cool. It's always a uh, it's always fun to be a trailblazer, but it's also a little challenging to be a trailblazer. Yeah, uh, I, it certainly had its moments, that is for sure. <laughs> Not just, um, I mean, there were still people in, within the department who really still didn't want women there. Um, unfortunately, my shift lieutenant was one of those. So it was a, a bit of a challenge getting through the FTO program. Uh, but the community itself and Tallahassee's kind of, at the time, an old South town and having women in uniform was just a foreign concept for them. So, um, but it, I, I wouldn't. The Gentiles were having a hard time adjusting, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, well, that's uh, their problem, right? right? 
Well, I did one real quick story to, just to highlight that is I got dispatched to a uh, one of our bars and the guy's out in the parking lot and obviously he he's on the losing end of the fight. He had broken nose. He's bleeding a little bit, nothing really serious. And so I'm talking to him, I'm getting all of his information and uh, at another officer show up who happened to be a, a male and he gets out of the car and, you know, he's just kind of, you know, Hey, do you need anything? And I'm like, no, everything's fine. And the guy that I'm talking to stops talking to me and goes right over to the male officer. And I'm just kind of standing there. I'm like, you know, whatever. And the male officer, he goes, sir, you need to go back over there and talk to her. She's, you know, going to write your report and handle your case. But I want to talk to a real police officer. (laughs) You know, and I'm just standing there. I'm like, you know, whatever. And and kudos to him. I mean, that's why I tell this story to this day, because he's like, I work with some really great guys, too. And he's like, you know, sir, she is a real police officer. And you can either talk to her or you're not going to talk to anybody. And I'm kind of looking at him like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'm not talking to her. And he, the other officer looks at me, he goes, come on, we're leaving. And I'm like, what? He goes, get in your car. If he didn't want to talk to you, then he didn't want to talk to an officer. Let's go. And I was like, holy crap. You know, but he, you know, he's a senior veteran officer. And I'm like, okay. So we both go to get in our car. And the guy's like, no, wait a minute, you can't leave. And he's like, well, you either talk to her or we are leaving. And so he talked to me. You know, and you know, but I was like, so it was those kind of little things, but uh, not bad. I mean, it really didn't take long for the community to to start getting used to us. <laughs> well, thankfully they did, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And I'm sure that's probably not the only the only uh, struggle that you had, uh, you know, internally, externally. Yeah, it, and you know, when you're not in those positions. Um, you know, it's it's kind of hard to to say, hey, I I can empathize or I can sympathize because you don't really know, right? Right. Um, you, it, I I learned that lesson a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I I can make a lot of assumptions, but I can think I know something. Um, but I I put myself in a, a few precarious situations because I thought I I knew what the hell I was talking about when I didn't know. So yeah. Um, well, probably the hardest part, I said, there were five of us and, and we were on different shifts for like the first 18 months. So I really hardly ever saw any of the other women. I didn't really have a mentor or somebody that I could, you know, talk to or, you know, I kind of had to figure it all out on my own. And um, I think that made me a little bit stronger. I mean, it was just something I had to recognize from the beginning that no matter what I or the other four did, we were always going to be under the microscope. And so that did add a little bit of a, a extra stress, I guess, to it. But um, we found actually a couple of years down the road, we, we uh, brought in a, a, a woman uh, who had more experience from a, a bigger agency in South Florida. And she kind of did become my mentor at that point. Uh, she just had a lot more experience and stuff. But Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, so you get promoted to sergeant and you start and then you're working homicide. In uh, maybe, again, just a little bit of a teaser from your book. And I'm going to hold this up for people that are watching on the YouTube channel. You can see see the cover there. Um, the. 500, 560 cases in 10 years. Uh, death you were working death in investigations. Av- death yeah. investigations. 
uh, uh, an average of one a week. I mean, that that's a lot. And you know, Tallahassee. I remember you, in the book you said you when you started it was a an, an agency of around 150 officers, and then by the time you retired, it was uh, right around 400. Correct. Yeah. Um, the Tallahassee itself has grown, and obviously so has the department. Yes. Um, and that's why I said. Um, people ask me, well, how come you know those numbers? Well, of course, when you have to testify in court, which wasn't thankfully all that often, but you know, you had to have your numbers, you know, especially yep. as a supervisor, well, how many death investigations have you supervised, blah, 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 all that. And I really didn't pay attention to those numbers until I retired. And I was like, you know, that is a lot. That's, that's one a week. And, uh, like I said, I had told you before, you know, it wasn't, those aren't all homicides, thankfully, but, you know, we were tasked with investigating every type of death there was. So, I mean, I've seen probably just about any way you can think of a person dies. I've seen it. Um, so, yeah, uh, that I didn't realize it, but yeah, that was a lot when I sit back and think about it. I have another interview with uh, Jim Bontrager. He is a uh, police chaplain, very interesting guy. He has a program that he runs, but one of the numbers that he put out was the average police officer in America will experience 180 significant traumas throughout the course of their career, uh, where the average person in life might only experience a handful, right? Like over the course of their life. So, and I, I, you know, that number, I think when people listen to that, will think it sounds high, but I was like, you know, it depends on where you work, right? And how busy your agency is and the things right. that you're doing. Like 180 actually seems, that could be like a year for some people, <laughs> uh, for for some officers. And I guess maybe it it all depends on how you define trauma. Right. Uh, and, and what, you know, what these, what these incidents are, but all of them, you know, any death investigation is, is going to be significant and, We'll use this as a good segue to kind of talk about your books. And I, I kind of want to jump right into your story in your book because you you lay it out and I really encourage people to buy it and read it. But you kind of set the tone for the way that your books are going to go with uh, how you express yourself and and what you did in your career and some of the things that that you managed and and some of these pivotal moments in your uh, in your career. What what was kind of what was your motivation to to write these books? In all honesty, is the books were born out of anger. Um, in twenty sixteen ish, I believe uh, uh, Ferguson Michael Brown had just occurred 2015, 2016, I can't remember. And the climate towards law enforcement was pretty much what it is back and forth today. I know we have our ebbs and flows with it. And, you know, being retired though, I'm like, you know, not all police officers are bad and evil. You know, the vast majority are good, hardworking people who love their job and love their communities. And so I was like, what can I do to humanize the badge. What can I do to get that message out to people? And I came up with the idea of, which 
people fascinate me. I, I, everybody has a story and I often get told you're very nosy. You ask a lot of questions and that's just me. I can't help it. Um, so I'm like, you know, what better way? Let me, maybe I can tell some stories. And so I came up with the idea and I started approaching and, and in volume one, everybody is retired. Uh, I wasn't sure how agencies would react to, you know, to it. So I was like, let me go with all retired people. Uh, almost all of them I personally worked with, but every single person, and I was very picky about who I asked and, and every person I talked to about it, they were like, that's a great idea. I'm on board. And I'm like, well, you know, it, and, and I, the books, if you're looking for, it's nothing but war stories. That's not what the books are about. Uh, I asked these people to really open their hearts and and talk about the hard parts of the job, the good parts of the job, the effects it has on you mentally and physically, on your families, career-defining moments, those types of things. So um, I actually got back so much more than I thought I would um, when I started writing Volume 1. And, uh, you know, in Volume 1, I have a, a, a guy I worked with who lost his wife to cancer, okay? We're human. We experience all the all the same things that everybody else does. Uh, another one that I worked with, his wife, uh, serious heart disease, ended up having to have a transplant. Again, we're human. Those are things that you know everybody else experiences. So do we. And that was kind of the impetus for for Volume One. Um, I never thought that it would be received as positively as it was. I had no intention of writing Volume Two. Um, but people really wanted to know more. So uh, volume two was born. Well, volume one was a uh, president's book award winner in the state of Florida, which is yes, pretty sir. cool. Yeah. Thank you. The, and humanizing the badge, I think is really important. And you tell, you tell a story really about yourself where, you know, just it's some of the things that we just kind of talked about already, but then some of those cases that that you take with you and one of the things that tends to happen to police officers over time is they experience trauma they see a lot of bad things they start to kind of go inward and rather than confronting these things rather than talking about these things they just kind of bottle them up because that's the way that it was taught to us, especially right. in, um, you know, I wasn't far behind you in, in my generation, but that's, you know, that, that was it early in the career. You really just, you just kind of did it right. And you didn't talk about it and right. you kind of see some weird things. Nobody else talks about it. So you're <laughs> like, well, I guess I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> I'll just, right. I'll just move on. And, and we, we have found that that's probably not the best way to, to handle this. <laughs> and this younger generation, they, uh, they get maligned, I think, at times for being soft and for being overly emotional. But I give them a lot of credit because they're probably going to manage the stress better in the long term. And I'm I'm hoping that we can reverse the trend that we're seeing nationally in that suicide rates right. being as high as they are. Uh, the rates of cardiovascular disease, all, all, all the things that we see that happen in policing that aren't just a, you know, a, a choice that officers make like, Hey, I just, I'm going to decide to be 
uh, a miserable, unhappy, unhealthy person. Right. <laughs> it, it's accumulation of stress and all these things that when we don't manage them appropriately, when we don't have the right outlets, that they, you know, they begin to take their toll. And it's, it's kind of like a, it's like a slow poison that, that eats away at you over time. And it's, it's not, not a matter of if it's going to show itself, but it really, it's going to be, it's more of a matter of when and, uh, you know, how, how it is going to express itself. So, right. So kudos to you for, I think, you know, writing these stories and humanizing the people behind it, because community members oftentimes don't look at police officers like they're actual people, like some kind of robots that are out there um, just doing a job with without a without a concern, care, or emotion in the world. And, and that is, I've I've had people. Uh, one thing volume did for me that I really didn't expect it is it opened up a whole nother world for me for especially for public speaking. Uh, I mean, I've been to college campuses, to criminal justice programs, to uh, professional groups, women's professional groups. I mean, and I live for that. And, and that's one thing I actually loved uh, at the police department. I did a lot of those things and I taught or was part of every Citizens Police Academy from the time we created it until the time I retired. And any opportunity I get to maybe educate um, even if it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I, I'm there. And, and in some of these speaking engagements, I, it, it dawned on me early on, I, I use this scenario. I tell people, and, and I'm like, do you really know what happens when you call 911? And people look at me like, well, of course, I call 911 and somebody shows up. And I'm like, short answer, you are correct. I said, but let's do this. Let's assume you call and you need a police officer. And I said, okay, police officer show up first off. You have to have somebody answers the phone, somebody who has to ask you those stupid, ridiculous questions that you think they are, you know, to, to enter that information, to get somebody dispatched. Okay, that's the start of the process. So now we have a police officer gets on scene and within a matter of seconds or maybe a minute or whatever, they're like, oh, crap, I need some other units, or I need fire, I need EMS, I need a detective, I need a supervisor, I need forensics, all these things. And literally, I watch people, their eyes open, their jaws drop. And I'm like, this is for your one call. You know, now, granted, that could be the extreme, but I'm like, you, you know, you've got 20, 30 people from all different parts of, of, of the system coming to your one call. And people are like, they're like, I had no idea. People don't know. Right. And and that leads you know, people I had a, an older woman, she was 72, I think, came up to me and she goes, I've ne I've always supported law enforcement, but I've never truly thought about you're a real people. There's a real person behind those badges. And and that's why, you know, when I got to, to doing that, I'm like in the books, um, I had to include fire, EMS, dispatch. Um, and forensics, which I think is the most forgotten group. Um, no, they're not a first responder, but they sure see it. And they see a lot of it. And, oh, yeah. Um, all day long. Yep. So um, there's at least one person representing all those groups in, in all the books. And uh, just just to let people know that I could never have done my job without all those people. So it's what I call my village of first responders. I like it. Well, I'm going to touch on uh, one of 
one of the lines from your book is that knowledge is power. And we'll use this as our first, uh, our public service announcement in that if you've never attended a citizen's police academy, mm -hmm. you should consider doing so. Strongly consider doing so. Yes. Because that's something that you and I have in common. You said that one of your favorite times in the, in the PD looking back was teaching the citizens uh, police academies. And I've talked about this a couple of times already on the show, but that was one of my favorite things to do as a chief. Uh, I ran the program when I was working in community outreach. And prior to that, I had little interaction with the program. And of course, like when you're a, when you're a young patrol officer or you're a patrol sergeant, you're working as a supervisor. Every time the Citizens Academy comes around, you've got 20, 30, 40 people coming through right. these programs and you've got to schedule the ride-alongs, ride get people out there. <laughs> and it becomes a management task. And when you don't really understand the benefit on the back right. end, or you don't take the time to consider the benefit on the back end, sometimes it's it feels like a responsibility and not like something like, oh man. I really, I really want to do this, but as you start to mature and you realize, wow, it really helps when I've had at least one person on my jury that's been through the citizens police Academy or mm -hmm. some, some person that's attending a city council meeting that's right. attended the citizens police Academy. And then you start to see the people that have gone through this program and you see them at different community meetings or interacting right. in different ways. And, they are all advocates for your police department. Cause I can tell you this, I've had some very outspoken, especially post Ferguson days, a lot of people that came in citizen reporters, others, you know, they're secret, you know, investigators that I'm going to come in here and I'm going to uncover right. all these, all this secret untold corruption inside the police department at, at week one. And you can pick them out. They're so easy to pick out just by asking a few questions. And I would never call them out, but you just know. And then right. by week 10, they're some of your biggest advocates at the end. They're like, wow, I didn't realize all the stuff that goes into policing. And Well, and this, this is going to be my mini soapbox with that is I, I sometimes get from people, officers who are like, they they get upset when people ask questions. They feel like they're being questioned and, you know, or, you know, why are you doing that or whatever? And I'm like, you should seize those opportunities. And, and I give this one real quick uh, story. I offer it is I was asked to teach uh, or be a guest at a uh, criminal justice class at Florida A&M University. We have two major universities here in Tallahassee. And, and this was several years ago. And of course, it was supposed to be about women in, in policing and which it never stays on that topic. Um, when when you're there, obviously, we spent about five minutes on that. And then it got into, you know, why did you do this? Well, you know, the, the, the profession as a whole. And, you know, it started to become a little bit negative. And I had a, a young guy ask me, he was very, very animated. And he's like, why is it every time, you know, I, I run up to a police officer or I see somebody else do it. The officer backs away or whatever. It's, you know, I find that offensive and you know what, you don't want to be near a, a, a black guy or, you know, just, and I'm just stood there and I just let him go. 
and I could, you know, heads are nodding in the classroom and, and I just, and finally he was done. And I said, okay. I said, I'd like to address that. I said, it's very valid. And so as I'm talking to him, he's in a, sitting in a desk and I'm standing, I start walking closer and closer to him. And by the time I'm really done, we're just about like this. I'm standing right there and he's backing away from me. And I said, why are you backing away from me? And he caught himself and he's like, well, I don't know you. You're invading my space. And I went, really? <laughs> and all of a sudden I could see <laughs> other, other students, students in the class, the professor, they're all kind of like bobbleheads, like, hmm. And so we had that discussion. And I said, Officers are taught from the beginning, you know, they, you know, keep a certain distance. It has nothing to do with whether you're black, white, male or female. It's a safety concern. They don't know you. You don't know them. And so we had that discussion. And it changed the dynamics of the whole rest of the hour. It became an awesome conversation. And I'm like, I try to tell that to officers, seize that opportunity, you know, to enlighten people. It's, it's not necessarily they're questioning you. They truly don't understand. Um, yeah. and, and, and that goes down to what, you know, I think was one of the most important qualities of an officer. It's, it's the ability to communicate. If you can't do that, it's going to be, make the job really tough in my opinion. Absolutely. One of the questions that you ask everyone in your books is to name a defining moment in their career, like a pivotal point that, they, they're going to take with them forever. And before we talk about a couple of the other stories in, in, in your books, I thought maybe we would talk about your own. Okay. So you, um, you had an officer that was, that was shot in the line of duty and you were, and uh, Sergeant Dale green, he was shot and killed while responding to a home invasion robbery. Um, but it was your, units investigations uh, your responsibility to work that case right so what's what's that like well obviously as the supervisor of the homicide unit that was always in the back of my mind that was one call i never wanted to get um that or a plane crash into the capitol building which our capitol building is very tall but anyway um I, you know, I, I still remember exactly, you know, what I was doing when I got that phone call. Um, and, and part of that too is, you know, people, we had a job to do and that's kind of the focus. I didn't, I didn't have time, nor did the investigators in the unit, nor did our forensics people we had a job to do. So the emotional side of we've lost a friend and a coworker that really as, as best as we could, didn't exist. We had a job to do. That was hard. Uh, that was a hard balance um, initially. And the other is we have the initial, uh, you know, then you have the funeral and I don't, I hate to say it, it's kind of cold. Life goes on. Yeah. You know, you know, but for us, I mean, we lived and breathed that case for over a year. I mean, every single day we were doing something with it. We were meeting with the prosecuting team. We we're, you know, meeting with the families or whatever. I mean, it just, you know, so 
we had to relive it and we never really had a chance when we, when we all got together later after, after the court trial and was like, you know what, as a group, we really never dealt with it. We really never, uh, you know, had that chance to grieve and, and uh, it, it was an incredible learning experience for us. So um, that was certainly by far one of the hardest things I ever had to do uh, in my career for sure. Because you have to put a, you, ha, you do have, and this is where, you know, the, this interesting juxtaposition comes in for police officers, because you do need to address these things emotionally and, and understand what the impact is, but you also have a job to do. Right. You have a professional responsibility and it, you know, certainly when it's one of your fellow officers, it hits really close to home, but you, you know, you worked you work these cases for 10 years and every, every case has a story behind it. Every case has a family behind it. Everybody, you know, and there are impacts that, you know, that ripple out. It's not just, um, you know, it's, it's not just you and, and how you feel about how you're managing it, but it's also, uh, the loved ones, how, you know, and, and, and particularly when you're working homicides, right. When, Right. Especially if you don't have a suspect right away and it it takes, it takes time, you know, that's, uh, that's tough. And I, I, you, you might be referencing, um, I, I, it was a homicide that we worked and it went unsolved for three years and, uh, we never gave up on it. We, we continued to work on it. Her mom and dad and her sister, um, uh, they lived out of town, but, uh, they stayed in touch and not in a pestering way. And this is, uh, this is a, uh, a, a young woman that was murdered in Tallahassee. In, yes. In her home, we found her in her home. Um, and, you know, that's the first time I really did see because it was unsolved and the wear on the family, you know, they'd call and check in and, and our victim advocate that was assigned to them. I mean, they became very, very close. Um, but when the family would come into town, I'd go to lunch with them or dinner. I mean, we just kind of, it was, we developed a very different relationship than I had with most. And, and I can't say there was anything more special about him. There was just something about it. And um, eventually we did solve the case and, and how we did it is that's a whole nother discussion um, with it. But when you talk about career defining moments, I had no idea. But when I retired, um, her father came to my retirement ceremony and I was just touched beyond words. Um, that kind of was like, that was what my whole career was about. Um, that he actually took the time and, and from out of town and came to my retirement ceremony. It was just, I, I really still to this day don't have words for them. And that's just, and that's just one case. Correct. Uh, and there, those are, you know, there are detectives across the country that are working, you know, that are, that are, uh, they're picking up cases today, <laughs> probably a couple as, you know, in the time that we've right. been sitting here. And the, uh, again, one of those challenges and things that you can help people understand through Citizens Police Academies and other programs. And, and quite frankly, stories in your book is that uh, the, the work never stops. Right. It, it's always coming. And the example that you gave earlier about 
Well, one person makes a 911 call without understanding the the processes behind it, the mechanics and the resources and everything that that is mustered to respond to that call. And, you know, for that person in that moment, the only thing that matters is them. Right. And the rest of the city is is still moving. Right. <laughs> you know, the world and sometimes it's hard for us to understand that even as police officers. Right. You know, the world does not revolve around us. Right. <laughs> the world is just moving. Yep. And the rest of the city doesn't stop. And so you still need to continue to be able to respond and 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 handle emergencies. And of course, you can prioritize what you're going to do with the resources that you have. And a lot of times people don't like that. Um, They don't like being a little bit lower on the priority, even though the nature of their emergency uh, or non-emergency may not, may not rise to uh, immediate attention. Right. But for the individual officers that are working the calls, right. Those things, those things never come up. Right. And when you're, when you're a patrol officer, it's funny, the internal, uh, the, the internal rivalries that you have at police officers, you know, with police officers and departments, right? You know, officers are like, yeah, detectives, those guys, they never do anything, right? <laughs> they're always going for ice cream and they get to eat lunch every day. And, right. you know, right. they're getting their workouts in. Like, we're out here humping, like, running calls all day long. Right. Uh, but, you know, when you're a patrol officer and, at the, and you do work, you know, you do work hard. And when you're done, you go home at the end of the day. And guess what you get to do? <laughs> you get to reset. And tomorrow you come back in. It's right. a new day. You might have some follow-up to do on a case here and there. But for the most part, your day ends. Tomorrow is a new beginning. But for a detective, when they go home. Um, if not they only, get to go home. Yeah, if they get to go home. But <laughs> they, they're bringing with them mentally and emotionally right. all the information that's coming with them in these cases that they're working. And then... Uh, all the cases that came in this today, and then there's more cases coming tomorrow. So right. if you're not closing out cases, um, then the work just piles up, right? The, right. It in, and that's that's a different type of stress and a different type yep. of emotion. Yep. Well, and and then you know sometimes and over the course of that ten years, you know we had minimum case numbers that you had. You know you you have to work so many cases a month, and I mean just. You know, when you, yes, when you add some of those other things, it just makes the job a little bit more difficult. Um, but I, I, I think career-defining moments in so many different ways are are the things that people need to understand. Um, and, and for me, there were two others, and I really don't want to. I want to get on to other people. I don't really want this to be about me. But uh, both were fairly early in my career, and one was. Um, when you, we talked before we went live uh, about the emotional wall that goes up. And right. I was patrol officer working nights. I got dispatched to hit and run. It was a pedestrian. And when I got there, um, gentleman, the victim was laying in the street up against the curb, uh, obviously had serious injuries. It was apparent to me he had uh, fluid and some mass coming out of his ears and there were some people standing up on the curb and they're yelling and screaming at me, you know, do something to help him. And, you know, I got down and, and I'm looking at him and I'm talking to him and I'm still waiting on EMS. I don't have a backup at the time. And I'm like, this guy's just not going to make it. So I, I went to the trunk of my car. I got a blanket and I came and all this time, these people are yelling and screaming at me. You're not doing anything, you know, help him. And um, I 
covered him up with the blanket. I got down there. I held his hand and I just talked to him and he could kind of follow me for a little bit. And then he died and they're yelling and screaming at me. And, you know, you didn't do anything. And I seriously, I felt my emotional wall just go up. And from that point on, I, I don't want to say I was cold because it actually served me well throughout my career, but, um, there was that emotional distance um, that was created right then and there. And uh, it took a while after I retired to start to bring that wall back down. Um, and and I, 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 I would imagine every police officer probably has a moment that's similar to that. Um, the other was everybody's got a story of I almost shot and fill in the blanks. Um, and mine was the very first time I pulled my gun and pointed it at somebody who had a gun and I had every right to shoot him and I didn't and it all worked out but it was I knew it but until that moment how much responsibility I carried how much I don't want to say power but for lack of another word of I had the power to take a life um you know those are and I think whether officers admit it, those are internal struggles and, and realizations all of a sudden of like, wow. Um, so those are the kinds of stories that I really wanted to get out in the book and in all three books. And um, I think they've evolved, like with volume three, we get more into the mental health side of it because of those types of things. Uh, so I, I said, if people are looking for war stories, there are war stories, but they serve a purpose. They're to tell a different aspect of the job. Yeah, and that's that. That's what I think is so unique and so powerful about your books is it really there's. I found myself at times wanting to know more about the case, <laughs> but but I knew that wasn't the intention because th this was really more about the how people responded to it and how it impacted them as people, not just as police officers. So Correct. it's a great way to segue. But so if if we go to book three. Sure. And uh, the, your story about Detective Dan Bright, um, a police officer from from Colorado, that that story in particular, I think, is it kind of like encapsulates everything about policing today that, you know, and, and I think we're getting better at it. We still have a long way to go. But, um, yeah, that's a that's a tough case. Um, Dan's story, um, and it, I, and I think I, I mentioned in the book how I, how I came across Dan, um, it, it does, it touches on everything. I mean, Dan's a, a, a veteran, but he's, he's shot in the line of duty. He's paralyzed from the waist down. He's in a wheelchair. Um, the dark place he went, he's open about that, um, including suicidal ideations with that. Um, thankfully that didn't happen, but he goes through that whole process and, and, and how and why it didn't happen. Um, how he came to terms with all that and kudos to his agency. Um, a lot of agencies would have written him off. He's still working. He's still a sworn officer. He's now the department's wellness coordinator. Um, he and his wife who, uh, is also a, a law enforcement officer, are both getting their master's degree with their goal and should be soon. 
um, becoming licensed therapists to deal with nothing but first responders and, and military veterans. And um, it's just a phenomenal story. If, if And I tell people, that's one thing I like about the books too. Uh, one, they're standalone. You can read volume three without having read volume one. Um, if, if you're looking for particular stories, then you can just read a story in the book. Um, it's not like you have to read a whole bunch of chapters. Um, everybody in the books are just, they hold a special place for me. Well, I'll just say this. If you're a police leader, if you're a police administrator, and and even if you have an existing wellness program, read this story. Um because I think there's there's a lot that everybody can learn. I, I when when I got done reading that, I was just like, and I I feel like I was pretty progressive. Um, but you know, we in our in our post career evaluation, right? You're always uh, it gives you a time to actually kind of like reflect and look back, and not only you know some of the opportunities that I've had since I've retired aren't you know not just my own self reflection, but being able to to watch and see what others are doing. And when you're when you're working it, that's kind of hard sometimes because you're busy with your with your daily grind and you're trying to you're trying to do the the best that you can. But his story is is really powerful in that it because it takes you through the whole event and and mm-hmm. and you get to you kind of get to look back on um, the process that he went through as an individual, uh, the struggles that he went through. Uh, and the fact that he is open and and shares so much with you is, I think is, is really powerful. So if you can, if you're a young chief and you're not really sure about what a wellness program should look like, um, this would be one of the first people I would call and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and hear this story. So you understand, all right, th- this is, this is what a comprehensive program is going to need to entail. Well, and that's um, one of that's one of the neat things with Dan too, and 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 that leads into how I met him. Um, I had uh, our local sheriff's department, uh, their new, uh, well, she's not new now, but at the time, their wellness coordinator. She's a licensed therapist, and it's funny. I actually had worked with her stepfather, uh, or not stepfather. I'm sorry, her father-in-law. Uh, Cause I'm like, you have an unusual last name. And she goes, I know. Yes. It's, you know, you probably work with my, my uh, father-in-law, which I did. Um, but so she kind of had an in, you know, to the profession, but she said, I read your book. And she said, I'd like to sit down and talk to you and pick your brain. So I, I met with her, we had coffee. And then I said, you know, look, I'm, I'm looking at writing volume three and she had met Dan and Dan very open about any agency can call him and he will help them um, or offer suggestions how to set up their wellness program. So I'm, I'm glad you actually give that plug for him because he is that kind of guy too. Um, he's, he's willing to help for sure. And, and so programs need to be comprehensive. His story is obviously, uh, you know, Thankfully, it's it's not a common story. It's right. you know, those those things are pretty rare. They happen more than we would like to admit. Um, but it all, also the fact that he's you know his spouse is is a police officer and she's responding to the same call. Right. So she she's a negotiator. He's he's a SWAT officer. Um, and she finds out over the air 
that that he's been he's been shot. That's crazy. I, you know, <laughs> that's now you now only do you have to manage uh the your professional responsibility. You're also trying to manage these these personal right. thoughts that are that, that are going through your mind. Well, you know, even his thoughts. I, I probably people think I over over say it. I am incredibly honored to have written every single one of these stories. And this is that they trusted me. They opened up to me and, and trusted me. Um, but when he talks about, you know, the bullet actually didn't paralyze him. It was a choice that the surgeon made, which was to save his life. They had to cut off the blood supply. And that's why he's paralyzed. I mean, you're right. He goes through this from point A to point B. And I'm not real big in, into, again, the war story, but all of that was so important to his story um, and to the aftermath. Um, it, it, he's just a phenomenal individual. He really is. And whether, you know, whether you're suffering from a traumatic injury like that, I mean, a, a life-altering injury, the I think one of the powerful things that can be learned from his story is that a lot of officers experience the very the very same emotions without without even having to carry that additional burden right. and uh, of where that you get in I call it the doom loop right where you get into these uh, these negative thoughts you, in that we talked about earlier right the shield kind of goes up right. we don't we don't there's no release we don't talk about it and then. Uh, this is why I'm such a strong proponent for people having a physical outlet as much as a, a an emotional and spiritual outlet, doing things like, you know, doing your best to eat well, get good sleep, exercise regularly, do these things because they help uh, with that balance and they're, and they're, they're good coping mechanisms to help, uh, you know, build resiliency and, and manage and mitigate right. stress. Right. But yeah, I wanted to read a, a passage from here because he he was talking about when he went to visit with uh, a therapist where he like that was even even in that situation it was very difficult for him to open up and share, even though right. he had been you know seriously injured in the line of duty. And uh, so he said, I was hesitant. I was hesitant to on our first visit. I didn't know the therapist, didn't trust her or feel comfortable sharing anything. I was just going to please her and share brief information so we could get out of there. Like, uh, I think every cop can kind of share that. And I, I right. say that with uh, a lot of agencies now because of people uh, like this that are pushing the envelope and that are getting people to change. A lot of a lot of agencies are requiring officers every year, sometimes twice a year. You're going to you're going to go meet with an EAP counselor right. and just going to have a discussion. Uh, just to get them familiar with the process. So then I went a second time, then a third. Eventually I was going every week for almost two years. It was invigorating. A huge weight was lifted off of my shoulders when I decided to stop avoiding my fears and thoughts and face them head on. Like I had with so many suspects I encountered in my career. And this is the part where I highlighted, I learned to challenge my thoughts and replace them with more accurate and positive ones. Even if they were only slightly better, this allowed my brain to have the capacity to begin to enjoy the small things in life before I was so engulfed in the negative thoughts that I could never focus on even the smallest 
of wonderful things in my life. And that that really stood out for me because that you don't have to be injured in the line of duty to get into that position where it's very difficult to see the good in life. Right. And um yeah, and and to challenge yourself and and I think sometimes what we also don't do well in law enforcement is we don't challenge each other. Uh, we don't we don't say, "Hey, how are you?" You know, how how are you really doing? Because th- I think when you do that, you're always worried about those questions being asked right back to you, and then and then you're going to have right. to address them yourself. Right, and and that's one thing I do like and I'm seeing more of it is the peer-to-peer uh, programs that are, are starting up in, in some, not just in law enforcement, uh, here locally, it's it's huge with our fire agencies, um, fire department, and with some of the surrounding counties, um, w- which I think is awesome. Um, sometimes we're slow to do those, and I'll be honest, the one at one of our local law enforcement agencies here was created because of a suicide and sadly that suicide happened to be the son of one of the first recruits i ever trained date myself again too and um but a wonderful program has evolved out of that and so if there's if there's a positive to be had that's it and when i've talked to them over there now how that has actually started to transform um, how they do business and and how how it's really helped the officers and I'm like I, I I hope that continues to be a trend in in agencies everywhere and like I said not just in law enforcement with a lot of our fire departments um, I actually um, with some dispatch centers they've started that as well so I I, I hope it takes off everywhere. So the second passage, I think ties in nicely what you just said. He says, I can't express how important our mental health is and taking advantage of the healthy resources that are available. The stigma against seeking mental health care doesn't exist anymore. We just believe it does. And I am proof of it. I'm still a cop in a wheelchair and very vulnerable in sharing my experiences after the shooting. I've helped so many other first responders through the darkest of their days and they overcame their struggles. There is plenty of proof that the stigma doesn't exist. So I think that's um, that's I think important for people to hear. A lot of times, and, and it kind of goes back to his first passage, right? It's you got to be careful about the stories that you tell yourself, right? Um, because they they tend to be they tend to be the most powerful, and they're the ones that are, that are going to impact you, right? So, you know, there's a lot of really cool things and, you know, his story doesn't end there. Um, the, um, he talks about not, not only just his struggles and his recovery, but then, you know, come, you know, you know, his fight to get home, to be home by Christmas. And then he's there and then he's, uh, and then after, you know, that first goal comes and goes and now he, you know, now he's left with the reality that, Hey, I'm here by myself. My kids are in school. My wife's at work. And I'm here, and that's that's kind of what led up to some of these things. But um, he had a a story in here where he talks about his friend right. that he was in the Marine Corps with that yep. was came came to the hospital, spent time with him, 
you know, didn't leave his side, was with them. And then later on, they um, they travel out to Washington, D.C. They go to uh, uh, they're out there for National Police Week. Right. They go to baseball games. He's everything's going well. And then um, they get home. And a few days later, he gets the news that this friend who is also a police officer has committed suicide. Right. So now he's after all that he's been through there. Now, now this is another one of the struggles that he has to overcome. And I think the, the interesting part about that is that, you know, he didn't pick up any of the, there was no signs, there was no clues. There was nothing that registered with him um, that this was going to happen, which I, you know, I, I, you know, it's the challenge right now. um, But he, you know, he he may, he has a line in there where he said, and where he was frustrated with that, that he didn't recognize anything. And he said he did us. He, he was in referring to his friend. He said he did such an excellent job at disguising his own internal battles, as just about every first responder does. That I never got a chance to connect with him on that level, uh, because he didn't understand what he was going through. So, wow. Yeah, I. I'm a firm believer that there are no accidents. Um, it, you know, sounds cliche, but, you know, things happen for a reason. And, you know, Dan's, Dan's story is just, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. And, and how I ended up and that, sadly, we've not personally met. We've, we've talked on the phone, we've texted, we've emailed, we've zoomed, we've, you know, just, and that's kind of the sad thing with volume three is there's, which I wanted to get the stories out of Florida and all across the country, which I did, but I've not actually personally met some of these people. Um, Dan's at the top of my list um, to do that. So, um, but I, I appreciate you. I said, if, if people, I, I think chiefs and other administrators would get a lot from Dan's story um, I think the books serve a purpose for families of first responders. Um, I've had a couple police explorers come up to me and say, oh, my God, I, I, I loved your books. I think they give me a, an insight as to what maybe I can expect as a career, uh, as a career, as a first responder. Um, citizens who just like, you know, just like I said before, I'd, n- I'd never thought about first responders as humans. Um, So I I think the books have a place for a little bit of everybody. Well, um, we're, we've been going for a while (laughs) and I knew this was going to happen and we, we've only touched on two stories. (laughs) So (laughs) let's, uh, I just wanted to maybe get, take a few minutes and really uh, have you, touch on any of the other stories in here that we haven't talked about or sure. I know they're probably all powerful and all important to you, but but just kind of based on the way that today's conversation is going, what's, what are some of the other stories that are, that are, you know, maybe coming to. Well, they said they're, they're all, each story has a story. They're like kids, right? We love all our kids. (laughs) Right. Um, And, and I told their stories for, uh, some for, 
you know, one or two particular reasons or whatever. And I touched on a couple, one whose wife died of cancer, who, you know, the heart transplant. Volume two, uh, it, and like you mentioned, it is not a normal, it doesn't happen every day. Um, this officer real quick, I said, I know we've been talking for a while. He's getting ready to go work off duty uh, FSU home football game, which we all had to do. And so he's, he's getting his stuff ready um, to go. And he hears sirens and one of his kids come and says, dad, there's sirens coming down the street. And all of a sudden he starts hearing gunshots. And he looks out and he sees fire truck. And then he sees there's a house down the road that's on fire, but he's hearing gunshots. So he gets his wife and his kids and he's like, gets them in the bathroom. He's like, stay here. He gets his vest on, he gets his rifle, he gets his radio, and he's like, you know, I'm here. You know, it's right outside my house. He sees a fire truck is taking on gunfire. So the fire truck's backing up out of the area. So he's getting it. He sees a deputy, our sister agency. He's with my old agency, the police department. So he gets to this deputy. He's been shot in the back, but his vest, you know, took that impact. So he's like, what's going on? He's like, we got here and we immediately start taking gunfire. They get, he gets him to safety. Well, they end up engaging the shooter. And he, the, the story, the officer's story that I'm telling, he engages and he shoots and kills this person. It was a set up ambush. He had set his house on fire to draw the first responders there. That's why he was shooting at firefighters, whatever. Unbeknownst to him, at that time, the other deputy had been shot in the head and killed. Um, he didn't know that at the time. He also didn't know he has a big picture window at the front of his house. His wife and kids had come out of the bathroom and watched this whole thing transpire. Watched him yes. engage the shooter, and he shoots and kills. They see all of this. Like I said, this is not a normal story. No. You know? So, I mean, that doesn't happen every day. But Scott opens up a lot obviously not that it and, and the story was not people don't like to take a life it's not something they get up in there every morning and go oh, i'm going to go shoot and kill somebody today the impact it had on him his wife his kids so bad with his kids they had to sell the house and move and every time the kids heard a siren they would you know scream daddy's going to get hurt or i mean so They've been through it all, and, and it was to highlight what this job can do, and people need to know that. Of course, Scott won all kinds of congressional awards, and you know he's just one of the most humble guys you would ever meet. Uh, and again, I was absolutely honored that he you know willingly opened up to let me tell that story. Um, every story in all three books aren't that dramatic or with Dan's, but every story does have a story and a purpose. And um, I'd encourage anybody, you know, if you don't like law enforcement to read them, but. Um, well, maybe even more important. <laughs> yeah. And, and, <laughs> for, and, for people that don't, that, that don't have the, the proper level of. Uh, right. You know, respect uh, for the profession. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call him out. He knows I do this, and he doesn't mind it. I don't know if you're familiar with Ernie Stevens. Um, there's a, a, a Emmy-winning HBO documentary called Ernie and uh, Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops. 
they yes. worked in the in the mental health unit at San Antonio. They both mm -hmm. have since retired. Uh, Ernie and I have become very good friends, uh, and he's a phenomenal individual. What he's doing now for for mental health, uh, but he read the books and he told me he said Donna. He said my wife and I have a great communicative relationship. We talk about everything. We're we're very proud of that. He said until we read your book, volume two, and I go uh oh, you know, and he's like. We read it together. And he said, when we finished, my wife looked at me and goes, do you feel the way these officers feel in the book? And he said, I do. And they realized and he realized he never really opened up to her truthfully about the job. But he said that opened up a whole new positive avenue of communication for the two of them. And, uh, you know, I was like, you know what, if I never sell another book, I, I'm, I'm happy just to hear that story. I, I'm, I'm ecstatic. So um, that's why I say I think the books have a little bit of something for everybody. There you go. So uh, maybe on wine club night, uh, <laughs> uh, bourbon and book night. Uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, we should do that. We should have a we should just, and we could do it via Zoom, right? You don't have now. That was yeah. a great thing. Great thing about COVID, um, and funny we should mention that because speaking of these, like one of my uh, one of my best friends from the service, uh, we were roommates in in South Carolina in the late '80s. We were Air Force security police, but he he went on to be a New Mexico State Trooper, and uh, his last few years he worked as a as he was a, a motorcycle officer, and then. Uh, he worked as a PIO like towards the end, but just yesterday I came across a feed from a, from a gun battle in New Mexico that happened last May. And uh, it was, it was crazy. I, I think you could just jump on YouTube and just uh, do a search like New Mexico state okay. police. And it was uh, uh, sadly, sadly there an officer was, was killed in the line of duty, a, a trooper, but almost everything that we're talking about, you know, in that case yesterday, uh, as I'm, you know, reading, um, reread your story and a, and uh, a couple others, as I was getting ready for this, and that just when I, I watched that video yesterday, and it all just kind of came flooding right back. Sure. And so you mentioned that, and I, I, I definitely was, I shared the funny stories, you know, and I think that's probably <laughs> what most of us do. Uh, we make light of. And, you know, and some, and sometimes, you know, the gallery, the gallows humor is, is completely inappropriate right? Uh, outside of uh, certain circles. And so I do caution people, you know, always know your audience before, uh, before Absolutely. you start saying some of these things, because yeah, you never know who's going to be there and what the, you know, what they might take away from it. But at the same time, you know, it is a valid and legitimate coping mechanism as well right. to be able to, to, to try to find ways to process some of these stories, but I was not a share of the trauma. Um, I definitely, I shared some of the the funny things. Right. I, I imagine you, that's probably pretty common. I think so. And, and again, um, there's not much I won't talk about now, but again, I'm so, I'm, I'm so far removed from the job that now it, and I'm from that old school. You suck it up and, you know, you didn't talk about it. But now, um, 
I'll, you know, ask me, I'll talk about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed of that anymore. Um, you know, did it bother me? Yes. Or how did you handle this? Or, you know, I'm there, you know, um, but I, I know it's still hard for people. Well, just a couple closing thoughts and we'll, sure. we'll wrap this up because we've been, we've been going. Thank you. Thank you for writing these books. Thank you for telling these stories. Uh, I did ask her before we went on air for the audience if she was going to write volume four because <laughs> I'm curious now. And in it's these are three books with amazing stories, and every single day, new stories like this are being they're being made. Right, um, the the officers are still out there every single day handling calls. Uh, police departments are are. St- are still there's they're still fighting a lot of the same battles and the big takeaway that I want everyone to think about is for for those that are in policing we understand the challenge right now for recruitment retention we're not getting the people coming into the profession that we uh, that we need and I think a lot of times we're not our own advocates for the profession we we do tend to focus on on the negative but the and and kind of the, the the emotional struggles but behind all those emotional struggles are also tremendous victories mm-hmm. and Dan's story i wanted to close with this because he talked about you know in, internally he was really struggling with all the things that he had gone through you know being shot being paralyzed and then he had a parent come up to him that was a parent from one of the children that was in a school that this vehicle was driving towards when they got into this gun battle and the parent thanked him like thank you for for protecting my child and man like that you when i read that you know i got my teared up a little (laughs) bit i was like yeah you don't hear that very often right there's not there's not too many of those stories that come back, but just like you had the father from a, a victim of a homicide that, you know, you, you guys are forever linked and connected. And right. these are the things, there's not a lot of professions that are out there that you can form these types of emotional bonds and these memories and to know that you have made an impact in somebody else's life. Uh, yeah. The pay is not great. Yeah. The struggles are real. The shifts are terrible, but not always. There's a lot of tough things, but there is so much good that police officers do. And they're so important to our society and our way of life. And that if we don't have good people coming in, I worry about the future. So be an advocate for the profession. Read these stories. um, Know that we can do better. There's things that we can improve on. But overall... It's a great profession. It's a noble profession, and there's there's nothing else like it, is there? No, there isn't. And and I I tell people, you know, if they're struggling, like, remember why you got the job to begin with. You know, I I know sometimes it's days aren't real easy, um, but and I, the vast majority of people in this country support law enforcement. You know, it's it's that loud minority that gets the press. 
Um, and that's hard to tune out. I get it. Um, you know, just, you know, just remember why you do the job. You know, it, it, it's, it's rewarding in so many ways. All right. So I, I like to ask this question to all my guests. Sure. And you're not allowed to say your own book. So it, <laughs> I like to know what, you know, if you've read something recently that you really like, that you found that was powerful, that you learned something from. And I can say that I've read three books here. Um, I, I haven't made it through all the stories, but I've made it through a lot of them. And the great thing about your books, by the way, one more plug, is that you can pick them up and read one story and then set it down. Yes. And and then you can come back to it a couple of days later, pick it up and and read another one. And that's that's almost how I would recommend people to read your books. I mean, now you may just get into it and just burn through it. Um, but these it's kind of cool to just read one and just kind of think about that. Think about the story and, and, the, and the why behind it. And I, I do have to say one other thing, too, because there's like a theme in all of these books. And one of the questions that you ask, and this will be, a, I think, a good way maybe to close the show. One of the questions that you ask in there is that what is a piece of advice that you have for someone that is you know, now in, someone new that's coming into the profession from all the things that you learned in the almost to a person? They they they're that common thread is. Take care of yourself. Remember your why and do the right thing and know that you're making a difference. Now, maybe not in those words, but that's kind of how it was expressed. In short, I guess it kind of sums that up. I it be true to yourself. And, you know, sometimes doing the right thing isn't easy, but it's always the right thing. Um I said, you know, remember why you did the job. It, it's just all those things you just said. I said, and, and it's don't don't lose you. you know, be true to yourself. Don't lose you. Okay, mm -hmm. what's your book? What's your book recommendation? You know, God, you gave me two seconds to ponder that. Um, I have to give myself a break. I do read. I read a lot of nonfiction. Um, and I've read some incredibly good ones, but I, I, God, I wish I had some of them here. I mean, I take bits and pieces. Um, you can go fiction. It doesn't have to be nonfiction. Oh, no, I, I, I read fiction to give myself a break from the nonfiction. Because <laughs> um, I, I will tell you, I get a lot of times, not a lot, but pretty frequent people, hey, would you mind reading my book? Um, and I'm like, okay, so I have two stacks. I have a would you read my book stack? And then I have a pleasure stack or, you know, that I want to read, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, I've read some really good books. I've read some not so really good books. <laughs> um, well, that's nice of you to read them though. That's I, a lot. I, Cause I'm sure you get a lot. I have a friend that's an author and I know she gets a ton of requests. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, I do like reading books. Um, I like Stories of resilience. Uh, uh, maybe that's personal. It, it, you know, sometimes that's a little boost I need. Um, kind of like Dan's story. If you if you don't get a boost out of Dan's story, you might need some therapy. <laughs> All right, last question. Since you're not going to give me a book, sorry. 
<laughs> I put you on the spot. Um, what piece of advice would you have for someone, someone that's getting ready to enter the profession now? Now that you've not only have you led an amazing career, we're a pioneer. Now you're an author, and uh, I'll call you an expert on policing, a lot of things in policing. So what would what would be your piece of advice? It it goes back to what I said is is don't lose you. And that's that's a personal because I did. I ended up doing most of our press releases on camera press releases about homicides. Our PIO and the chief are like, look, you know what you want to release and not, and I don't want to screw anything up. So why don't you just do the interviews? I'm like, okay. So sadly I was on the local news a good bit. And so I couldn't go to the grocery store without, Ooh, you're Sergeant Donna Brown. You work in homicide. You're Sergeant Donna. And that's who I became, which it wasn't who I was, but up here I lost myself and that's who I was. I wasn't Donna Brown who liked to go play golf or to watch my cubs or uh, you know, and it did it once This is the I year, by the way, again. I hope so. Um once I retired, it dawned it hit me. I mean, it took me that long. It was like I had lost who I was. And I didn't like that. And I started thinking back, I'm like, man, you know, so do you, don't lose you. Um, that's that's probably the biggest piece of All advice right. I can give. That's simple enough. <laughs> simple simple to say, a little bit harder to execute, it is, right? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. <laughs> yep. And should people be a Cubs fan or not? Absolutely. If you're a White Sox fan, we have nothing else to talk about. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, well, there's I'm no a, better place to go watch a baseball game than Wrigley Field. Absolutely. I agree with you. I can't wait to go back. I did get a chance to go to Fenway finally. Uh, that was back in 2014. That so that was be even awesome. befo before the Cubs finally uh, got up to Schneid and, and won a World Series. But Fenway was pretty cool too. I'm not going to lie. I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, but my, my mother, real, real quick story. My mother, um, born and raised in Chicago. That's how we used to spend summers up there. Um, she's the baby of 17. So um, <laughs> I have a lot of extended family, still have family who live up in Chicago and that. But the, she used to love Derek Jeter too. She, she would like, she liked to watch Derek Jeter play. So we had the opportunity, the Cubs played at Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium. So we took her there. She, so she got to see her Cubs, but she also got to see Derek Jeter, which, of course, at that time, the Yankees just beat the snot out of them. Actually, that was the first Grand Slam Derek Jeter hit was against the Cubs that weekend. Um, I remember that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but yeah it's, I am a diehard Cub. My grandmother used to be able to quote batting averages and stuff so yeah i get it honestly with that folks uh i really do appreciate uh, donna I, I appreciate you spending some of your valuable time with us and sharing your stories from your book and from your career and if somebody uh wants to reach out and get in touch with you is there do you have a website or some way that they can contact you 
Um, I do have a website. It's behindandbeyondthebadge.com. Um, you can reach me that way. I am on social media. Uh, I'm not a big fan of social media, but with the books, I was told you got to be out there. So, um, <laughs> I'm on Instagram, I'm Facebook, um, Twitter, which I'm not on a whole lot. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So any of those, you can send me a message, uh, or send me an email through the site. You know, I'll, I'll certainly respond to you. Absolutely. What's and your Twitter book- handle? I'm at the folly on Twitter. I love Twitter. It's the Do wild you really? west. It's I, I guess it's I like scroll- a to- it's like a it's like watching a car accident in motion. Like <laughs> it's like we're gawkers. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm Donna B two one three on uh, Donna Donna B two one three. All right, yeah. I'm going to follow uh, you on Twitter. Um, I, and I, I shouldn't say that I don't like it. It's just I scroll past so much now that I used to. You know, I used to sit and read stuff, and now my whoops scrolling past, scrolling past. Yeah. But, um, yeah, you can get sucked in in a hurry. You can buy any of the books through links on uh, the website, but honestly, the easiest is to go onto Amazon. Um, they're available as ebooks, paperback, hardcover. Um, volume two is actually available audio as well. Um, oh, good. And and if you like them, if you do read them and you like them, you know, I'd love to hear about it. Um, you know, drop you a review on Goodreads. Goodreads. I am on Goodreads. Um, you can leave it there or leave it on uh, on uh, Amazon too. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, they are with my my highlighter <laughs> pens. That's and that's the, great. That's so great. these I've, and I've shared this before, but and I, these are harder to find these days. But these are Post-it highlighter. So you have a tab, you have a pull tab, you have the highlighter. And then on the other end, you have the pen. That's awesome. So I wind up oftentimes sitting at my desk or in my little reading chair that's behind me like this. <laughs> yeah, I'm highlighting or writing notes, <laughs> pulling the tabs off. <laughs> I am a sticky person and I have them, I'm old fashioned. I have them everywhere. And when I worked, I used them. And where my office was on the second floor of the new wing, which they're building a whole new building. And to get like to forensics, I had to come downstairs, go through the lobby and go to the old building. And I can't tell you how many times I would get to the lobby and stop and go, where the hell was I going and why? <laughs> I, had to go, I had to go all the way back up to my office in the second floor. So then I started just writing out stickies and putting them on my chest. And everybody just started <laughs> laughing. It's like Sarge. And I'm like, I'm not forgetting anymore. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm a sticky person. A lot of things bouncing around and up in those noggins for the supervisors. <laughs> All right, folks. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Until the next episode, we're 1042. Thank you, Donna. Thank you.